0: Hello. Good evening. Welcome to Monday Night Bible Study. My name is Adam Schindler. I'm your host slash Bible teacher slash sometimes quirky political commentator. I know that many times pastors and Bible teachers don't like to incorporate the political views into their Bible teaching. And I do my best not to be political, but there are truth governmental things that... I like to comment on as we're teaching through the scriptures, and tonight will probably be no exception to the rule. So I'm grateful that you guys are joining with me tonight and putting up with all my quirkiness and the unashamed opinions that I have. Um, If you're just joining me this evening for the first time, I do have some friends over to my left on a Zoom meeting. These are my live friends that participate in the question and answer. If you'd like to get connected to me and my ministry and the things that we're doing and receive the Zoom meeting, you can text the word STUDY to the number on your screen, 770-746-8388 and get connected. I would love for you all to connect also with me on my website right down here adamschindler.com also on that site you can find me on iTunes Podcasts Google Podcasts I'm trying to get my stuff out I'm talking with a a Roku TV station people to get some broadcasting out to some other spots as well so I'm just really grateful that you guys would join with me on some Bible studies Um, I'm producing all this stuff myself so if you see me looking around all scattered it's because I'm Pushing all the buttons and the menus and everything. So I'm going to bring down the audio. So tonight we are going to be looking at um, a study that I'm calling Divorced from the Presence. We've been working through for the last number of weeks, we've been working through the book of Genesis. And I've been teaching through that, I think it's done about eight weeks now. We took last week off for July 4th, America Independence Day. Hope you all had a happy July 4th, Independence Day. Um, As a side note, declaring independence without declaring dependence on something greater is declaring death, okay? Declaring independence without declaring dependence on something greater is declaring death, just like a fish that declares its independence from a water from its little bowl and jumps out onto the floor and dies, If you want to declare your independence, you have to declare a radical dependence on something that is so much greater and bigger than who you are. And so tonight we're talking not about independence, but we're talking about death. We're talking about the separation, the destruction that came when Adam and Eve, humanity chose to eat from this tree and disconnect themselves from God um, and divorce themselves from the presence of the Holy One of Israel. So it's going to be a fun, a fun evening. So would you guys just pray with me real quick? Um, my Zoom friends have prayed with me, but I want to pray really quickly as well. King Jesus, we love you. Father, we declare our dependence on you, on your voice, on your word, on your truth, your written word, your spoken word, and the eternal word, Jesus, the Messiah. Father, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come in your power and do what you promised, to reveal the things that are yet to come, to remind us of everything that you've taught us, and to lead us home to the Father. God, we don't want to do any of this stuff so that we can get proud in our biblical knowledge or to get you know more apologetic ammunition to go put down the crazy atheists. God, we want you. You're the reward of our pursuit. You're the reward of our study. And so we ask you, Jesus, that we would discover more of you tonight. We pray these things, Jesus, and believe them according to your word. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Amen. Well, friends on Facebook, I see y'all from Cincinnati. Jonas, pastor friend, from Haiti. I hope you guys understand some of what's going on in Haiti right now. I haven't talked much about it. The Haitian president assassinated. Um, If you're on Facebook and you see Jonas commenting, hello, Jonas, please pray for him, the work that he does over there in Haiti as a pastor and a lot of the stuff that's happening there in Haiti. So God bless you, Jonas. Um, Hello from San Diego, friends from Alabama, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. There's a lot of really fun Fun states, it's just great to have you all from around the country joining in. Plus, you know, we've got, how many do we have? 30 some, whoa, 49 people on Zoom. Great to have you all with me on Zoom as well. Hey, Cindy from Jersey, one of my first internet, random internet friends. Good to see you. All right. So I want to give you all a quick, um, a quick recap. Take a little drink here. I'm going to give you all a quick recap um, from what we've done the last couple of weeks. If you're just joining, we definitely have a few new people here with us. Um, So last, a couple of weeks ago, I introduced these terms, and I just want to give you another uh, lowdown on this. If you go to my website, adamschindler.com, you click on the button Theology, you'll get to see these. I will put a Genesis link up there like I have like for the Exodus files. So these are all archived on my website, adamschindler.com. You can also kind of find them on Facebook and YouTube, but they're kind of spread out. Their best place to get them all is adamschindler.com. But I want to work through these um, uh Terms here. This is key for our understanding. Connection defined by being seen, heard, and valued. It's this experience we have mutually when you can see, hear, and value each other. We're connected to God. We see Him, hear Him, and value what He says, and it's reciprocal. Then there's another word, knowledge. The knowledge that uh, the Bible talks about with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is this word, da'ath. And it is the Hebrew word that means a perceptive skill or ability. This is this is cognitive, rational knowledge, skill, talent um, in the scriptures. Okay, but there's another word for knowing called yada. And yada is this intimacy. This is an intimate knowing by experience, this word. This is Adam knew his wife Eve, and they gave birth to Cain. Okay? And then the other word, vulnerable, vulnerability is about risking uncertainty exposure, about nakedness, that Adam and Eve were vulnerable. Humanity was made valuable, vulnerable, and imperfect, that we're made with the capacity to make mistakes, okay? And I taught through all of this a couple of weeks ago, but then the word that I use quite a bit is this word intimacy, and intimacy is not transparency, Transparency is you can see, like you go to a zoo and you see the lions playing in behind the plexiglass that you stand. That's trans- that's um, transparency. You can see in. Intimacy is getting in the lion's den with the lions, being vulnerable to be touched. But intimacy then is a sustained experience of a vulnerable connection. This is something that we build as we abide in Christ. The intimacy with God is about connecting to Him, having encounters with Him, both His written Word, His spoken Word, and the eternal Word, Jesus. And then not just seeing what God is doing, but letting God touch you, letting God expose the sin, letting God expose the areas in your life that need to be changed, healed, delivered, set free. Okay, that is intimacy. And it's not just a one-time event that you do when you repent at the baptismal or you get baptized or you say the sinner's prayer. Just like you don't confess your love to your wife or your spouse on the altar, it is a daily sustained relationship that builds intimacy. This is what our relationship with God is all about. Now, I'm doing three weeks of teaching here in about 10 minutes just to recap but this was the seduction. That was humans' experience with God. But this was the enemy's seduction. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. The enemy came and said to Adam and Eve, he said, God has an experience that he's intentionally withholding from you. And God is doing this because he doesn't want you to be equal with him. Therefore, you should break out from underneath his power hierarchy and gain for yourself the secret knowledge Then you'll have equality with God and you'll belong and you'll have equality with God being God yourself instead of just his dependent. Love the serpent. Um, No, that's not a Bible verse. That's my paraphrase that I taught through. So this is the seduction at the tree, that God is withholding something. The serpent gets Adam and Eve to believe and they bite on the proverbial fruit and say, you know what? It's right. God is He is withholding from us. He has an experience that he's withholding from us. And they try to gain experience through their minds. Okay, And this is the human condition that we try and gain more knowledge about God instead of being with God. We reason our way into the kingdom of heaven instead of experience or encounter him. Okay, There's plenty I can say to qualify that, but I did a whole teaching on it. So if you have questions about what I said, go and listen. Then the next week, which was last time, the payoff after Adam and Eve, they didn't actually encounter God. The scriptures say that Adam and Eve had the yada of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not the experience of connecting with the tree of life. They have an encounter, not with God, but with the serpent. Now humanity becomes eternally bound to this crafty human rationale regarding what's right and wrong, good and evil. That word crafty is part of the word that we talked about, um, uh, arum. And it's the Hebrew word that the serpent was more crafty than all of the beasts that the Lord God had made. And I talked about what craftiness is, okay? So... They get tempted. They had this great relationship, intimate connection with God. They get tempted with God as their rival, withholding experience from them. They eat from the fruit that's forbidden. Then they have an encounter not with God, but with the serpent. We become more like the serpent than we do God after we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these are the consequences. Some of the consequences we looked at last week is that humanity then loses its fathering influence in their lives. And a father primarily gives identity, protection, and provision. Okay, this identity piece that they're immediately aware of their shame and their nakedness. They become self-aware, aware that there isn't even is a concept of the self. And there's a lot that could be said about that. Look at last week. And then they lose the protection that a father provides them. Why? Because they flee the presence. They run away from God when he comes and says, where are you? And they're, they've fled and they've hidden. And that creates this inhumanity, this irrational belief that we can even hide from God. Right? How foolish is it that we think we can run and flee the presence? All right? The psalmist says, this great psalm, I think it's Psalm one thirty nine. It's like, where would I go, O Lord, that I could flee Your presence? You know, if I go into the bottom of the depths of the ocean, still there You find me. If I flee to the edge of the earth, you'll, Your love will continue to find me. Like, where can we go? You know, when we're ashamed, we run and hide, but we encounter the reality that there's nowhere we can go that hides from God. We just trick ourselves into believing that works. So we lose our sense of identity. We lose the protection of the fathering and then we lose the provision. Okay. Adam and Eve decide they create fig leagues and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I can get this. I got this. I made the mistake, but then I try to fix it. Okay. And this is what happens when we get into these patterns of shame and cycles of blame. We think, We make a mistake, then we get blamed for the mistake, then we pass the blame for the mistake, and then we think we can fix the mistake that we made by doing it on on our own, right? And Adam and Eve did not reconnect with the Father when he came to pursue them. They tried to fix it themselves. All right, wow, that's three weeks of teaching. Fire fire hose you in eight minutes. Um, Just warning tonight, is tonight's a fire hose night, okay, just FYI. Um, so you probably want to tune out halfway through a quarter of the way through and come back and listen or hang out with me. I'll try to make it entertaining. So one last thing here, as far as recap, um, the last thing that we see is something that I call the cycle of blame. Okay. And we see Adam and Eve living now in this. All right. And so the cycle of blame begins with sin. Okay. The sin of separation, sin in the Greek, is the word hamartia, and it's an archery term that means to miss the mark. Okay, The the Hebrew word fleshes that out a little bit differently, but it's the same essential concept. So sin begins by missing the mark of who God made us to be. And when Adam and Eve do that, and when humanity does that, God comes after them. That's immediately what we see in the garden, is that God comes after them. He doesn't yell and scream and get angry. They say, the scriptures say, And Adam and Eve heard the voice of the Lord God walking by the Spirit, and he cried out to them, Where are you? Okay, this is God's relentless pursuit. We sin, God pursues. Step one, step two, okay? Before sin, before law, before everything else is the pursuit of the Father. Okay, but then what happens is that Adam and Eve got afraid, and instead of responding to the pursuit, fear and shame entered, and they ran and hid. So we sin, God pursues, then we run and hide. And I talked a little bit about, you know, if you sin and respond to God's pursuit, this cycle stops. Okay, you don't have to go into fear and shame and hiding. If you sin, God pursues, and then you don't fear, hide, and shame. You stop that cycle, which is what David did with a pretty big sin, Bathsheba, kind of a big deal, you know, adultery, murder, illegitimate kids. The prophet comes, I think it's Nathan, conv- you know, confronts the king, the unconfrontable king, you know? I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're someone that is unconfrontable, uncon- then you're, uh, you know, you're in trouble, you know, if you can't be confronted for doing stupid things, you're going to start doing a lot of stupid things. David immediately repents. Okay? A big sin. He doesn't go into fear, shame, and hiding because he spent so much time in the presence of the Lord around the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle worshiping and rejoicing. And even though he was lazy, hanging out at his palace instead of going to war, lusting over his chief warrior's wife, even though it's this massive sin, he responds to the advance of God, the, criti- the critique, the discipling discipline of the Father, and this whole thing stops. Okay, but that's not what Adam and Eve did. So after they were fearful and shame and hid, then God says this again. He says, who told you that you were naked? God requests that we re-examine the voice. Okay, and this is not rhetorical. Right? God is not this is not a rhetorical question from the Father. It is who is speaking to you now? What voice are you hearing that is telling you these things about yourself? Do they line up with what God says is true about you? Is it another voice? And this is another spot that we can stop this cycle of blame that continually leads us back into sin if we will, if we will not check our privilege, but check the voice, right? Who's speaking? But Adam and Eve don't do this, and so now we're off to the races. So then Adam, man, blames the relationship on God. He's like, this woman that you gave me, okay, it's her fault. So first he blames the relationship that he has on God, and then he blames the problem on the relationship. You know, this is a good Aristotelian two-step categorical syllogism. (laughs) You know, first argument God, you gave me the relationship. Second argument, the relationship is the problem. (laughs) Conclusion, God, you caused my problem. Okay? That's essentially what he's saying with two simple sentences, which is what we do. We blame God for our problems by blaming our relationships on him and then blaming our problems on our relationships. Okay? This is the male issue here in Genesis And then the last thing that happens is that the woman then blames the problem on the serpent. Okay? She's like, well, the serpent deceived me. So this is the cycle of blame that we see this descriptive um, experience in Genesis, is that we sin, we miss the mark, God comes after us, we run and hide. He says, who are you listening to? The men say, God's fault gave me this relationship. The relationship caused the problem. The woman passes the blame onto the serpent. And what's missing from this whole equation? Personal accountability, personal responsibility. Right? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Where the scriptures root the problem of sin in the world. Okay? And this is the critical um, assault against Christianity from critical race theory is that it removes personal accountability and responsibility and it it, it, it originates sin not in hearts but in systems. And if a system is fundamentally broken, it's got to be torn down and destroyed. And God doesn't come and cleanse systems. He comes and cleanse human hearts. So if the problem is in a system and not a heart, then it's not a redeemable problem because the way you fix a system is by fixing a heart. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight as well. So the last thing here, when the woman blames the problem on the serpent, then what does that cause more of? Well, that causes more sin because no one's taken responsibility for the problem. No one's owned up to the disconnection. No one's tried to reconnect. We've just passed the blame, which keeps us in a cycle of sin. Okay, and this is what we talked about last week. And this is where I think it's a pretty good description of where the earth lives, okay? This cycle of blame where it's everybody else's problem. You call it a victim mentality, you know, and there are entire um, philosophical ideologies that are built upon this foundation, which is the serpent's lie that there's a power hierarchy created by God who is this male patriarchal system that wants to withhold equality from everyone else by reserving special knowledge just for himself. And we have to topple this hierarchical power structure in order to gain for ourselves the experience and the wisdom that God is withholding. That's the lie of the serpent. That's the lie of much of the culture now that is challenging the the foundation of the United States, the foundation of personal accountability, identity. Call it left left wokeism politics if you want to. I think it's a decent description at least to begin a discussion. But that is the ancient demonic spirit that has been lying to humanity for thousands and thousands of years. Okay, And I, for one, want to expose it in my own life so that I don't have to live under it so that I can begin to uproot it and defeat it out in culture. Okay, That's why we're talking about this, because God's not going to do through you in the world what He hasn't first done to you in your own life. We get the gifts of the Holy Spirit on us to do the work in the world, but we get the Holy Spirit in us for the fruit of the Spirit to transform our own lives. God starts in the heart, and then He works out, okay? So, that is a, a fast 20-minute recap of the last four, four weeks. So, tonight, we are going to pursue, then, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through about 25. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be primarily in Genesis 3, and then... Um, At the very end, when you guys are all mentally exhausted and wearied from my hour-long lecture, we'll dive into Romans and Galatians and do deep, intense theology. Um, I wish I was joking, but I'm not. Um, I just thought maybe I need to stop. We'll see. We'll see. It's in my notes. But we'll see if we actually get there. So um, let's do this. All right, so let's do Genesis um, 3, 14 through 15. This is what happens now. After all of these events that I've just recapped, this is what happens, and this is the Lord's response then because of the disconnection. Let's read this. Genesis 3, 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, I'm not going to do deep analysis on all of this, but I do want to point out is that there are curses in Genesis, and it's key that we understand where the curses are. Here, who is cursed first? The serpent, right? Who is the serpent? We talked about that one of the weeks. So the serpent is cursed, okay? And there's enmity between the woman, bruise, bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. We see this again in the book of Revelation. I'm not going to get into all of that, but... So the serpent is cursed and he's on his belly and lives in death, in dust, and then to the woman he says this, Genesis 3:16. to the woman he said, "I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you." Okay, so I just highlighted this desire shall be contrary um, word here because It's the exact same words and structure as right after this with Cain and Abel when God says to Cain, Watch out, sin is crouching at your door and his desire is contrary. Okay, the lustful pursuit, desire, it's a strong word, it means lust, essentially. It's lusting after you to oppose you. Okay, and this is the same thing that God says is now coming to. Uh, uh Eve to woman um, I talked briefly uh, a couple of weeks ago about the areas of sin um and the woman sinned in the area of trying to get the authority for herself she saw that it was tempting okay and so in this capacity, the husband shall rule over you. The woman saw that there was a chance now to have this experience to get for herself what God had withheld, right? She believed that lie. Adam believed it too, but his sin was a little bit different, it seems. So she sinned in that area, and and women have historically struggled with the serpent and culture influencing by the serpent keeping women under authority, out of places of authority, keeping them down, keeping them out of the biblical place that they have been called and rooted to with a wrong understanding. can do a whole discussion about that um, in culture and also in the church. But it is clear from the scripture that the Lord says that as a result of the fall, the husband will rule over you. And I... I've always thought this was sort of interesting. Um, It's like, uh, you know, I mean, in some... I guess I'll go here. I won't be able to make a sophisticated argument at this point. Um, But I've always found it interesting that there are segments of Christianity that teaches according to their understanding of the scriptures and there's robust debate about this but i think it's pretty clear um about women not being allowed to teach the scriptures women pastors are not okay even though in the new testament there's a ton of women pastors there's women apostles that paul runs with you can have your tortured logic for why you don't think that's accurate historically um but um I do—sorry, um, I've just seen a comment there about a distracting noise. I may have fixed it. Um, but the—oh, uh, man. The, oh, yeah. The idea that um, women uh, are ruled over by men, um, in some elements of Christian teaching and tradition, there is sort of this dominating male culture that keeps women in lower positions and says that it's God's scripture that tells them this. Yes, there's godly submission. Yes, that there is order and structure in the way that God created things. But they they quote this passage about men ruling over women. Well, I always found that kind of interesting. If you go to this kind of fundamental place like that, um, these are the same people that that talk about the the end of sin and the forgiveness of Jesus. And I just think it's interesting that they say men should rule over women. And they quote this passage, but they don't recognize and admit that that is a result of the disconnection from God. This is a result of the fall or the rebellion. And if God, Jesus, has come to reunite us, to undo or restore the fall and the rebellion, then shouldn't this be part of the restoration? To not necessarily imprison women under the rulership of men? I'm waiting out into some deep stuff here, but I think it's interesting um, to just look at if these are the consequences of the rebellion and the fall, and Jesus comes and restores this stuff. How much of it is restored now? How much is it, is it restored in heaven at a later date? But I think it's worth asking that question, you know. And in the same capacity, pain and childbirth. You know, I don't really know if this was a legal prayer. Um, <laughs> But I prayed that pain in childbearing was part of the rebellion in the fall. So when my wife was hurting in childbearing, I was claiming God's covenant restoration of the disconnection and praying that there would be no or limited pain in childbearing. And I thought if pain is a result of the fall, why can't why can't you um why can't you pray that the pain would not um, continue. So, sorry, I'm getting distracted by some comments. I need to turn those off. Um, So, that was what the Lord said to the woman. And then I want to talk about this here. This is what the Lord said to the man. And God says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and from for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay, and so this I, I underline, listen to the voice of your wife. Um, because this is the same phrase as um, they heard the voice of the Lord walking by the Spirit in the garden. I talked about that last time. That you've listened, you've shamed the whole of your Isa, of your wife. Okay, And the, the implied, um, the implied uh, statement here is that, Adam, you were listening to the temptation that your wife was underneath. You weren't listening to the voice of God. OK, you agreed instead of speaking up and listening to what I told you that you knew I told you, you listened to the voice of your wife. Okay, And it's not your wife's fault. This is you were the one that was shemai, not God, but your wife. This is the responsibility and, and the sin of men historically, is that we have not spoken up the truth of God in our families and in our homes and in our cities and our spheres of influence. We've stayed silent on relational matters, on the truth of the scriptures and the word of God. Okay, And because there has been silence there, the ground was cursed. Okay, and so I highlighted that because it's important to note that God never, um, that God never cursed humanity. Okay, never. Not in well, the word cursed isn't there uh, in Genesis. He cursed the serpent and he cursed the ground, the earth, because of Adam listening not to God but to his relationships the people around him, his spouse. Um, And now, because of that, then, verse 18, um, Thorns and thistles shall the ground, the earth, bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what's the problem for humanity, for, for mankind? Well, that mankind's work would be filled with toil and, in many cases, futility. Okay, and and I think this is interesting as well because, um, again, these are. Broad generalizations about male and female. Okay, I'm not trying to shoehorn gender roles or have that whole big discussion, but God made man and woman. Men and women are different. There's obvious both biological and social or psychological, physiological differences. Okay, and for men, one of the big calls is to work. Like, men want to work, and women want to work too, you know, but the drive for a woman to be a mother is a different kind of labor than for a man to labor in the field. There's just a different kind of urge. And not to say that all women have the same urges, but, again, generalizations. I don't need to be super qualify, but if you guys know a little bit of the conversation our nation's having right now, you know why I'm doing that. Um, but for men... The desire to work is a strong one, and there's great value. And when you have a hard day's work, there's a great reward from working hard and watching the fruit of your labor. But the problem here in Genesis isn't that men are cursed with work. It's that men are cursed with futile work, or work that doesn't bear much fruit. Okay? And that is something that is so, so difficult. One of the great horrors in Nazi Germany with the concentration camps wasn't just that they dehumanized the Jewish people and all of the other kinds of folks that were there. Um, It wasn't just Jews that were imprisoned, though they were the vast majority. But it wasn't just that they imprisoned them. It wasn't just that they took all their stuff. It wasn't that they just starved them and put them to work. One of the most horrendous things that they did was they gave them meaningless work, right? Days and days of meaningless work, like pick up in some of the concentration camps. They were told, and there's records of this, of them picking up um, giant sacks of heavy stuff, whether it's grain or cement or some other kind of thing. They would just carry it from one side of the yard and back, just back and forth, back and forth. And these were not done haphazardly. They were done because they saw that it broke the human spirit, especially the male will, to work in futility. Okay, and this is one of the things that is the reality as part of the divorce decree, and I'll tell you why I keep using that word in just a moment, is that Adam and Eve were separated from the presence of God and mankind was driven into futile work. Pain for the woman in bringing forth life and pain in futility in the man for bringing forth produce. So this is verse, the next piece here is verse um, Genesis three twenty and 21. So that was the, the, the consequences of, let me come back here and just say a couple more things. Those were the consequences of the disconnection that God speaks to the serpent, to the woman and the man. They each get a particular consequence from the Lord as part of the actions that they committed and part of the disconnection and separation okay but then the Lord says in Genesis three twenty, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them Okay, and so I want to camp on this for just a minute. Like, this is part of what God's solution is now, okay, is that there's a problem. There's a disconnection. People are caught in a cycle of shame and a cycle of blame, okay, and they've got consequences now because they didn't reconnect to the Father when He came and pursued them, and there's deep consequences now. And they have discovered that they're naked. They've discovered the concept, the idea of self-identified, being identified with a self, and that they're ashamed of being naked. And now the Lord God wants to cover them. Okay? And so I want to look at this verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So, there's a lot of discussion about this. Again, this is Genesis, and so there's always a ton of debate and uh, lots of different ideas about this. It's an ancient book, um, an origin story of the earth, so there's lots of, lots of possibilities here. But I want to point out this, is that the word made there is the same word that is used in Genesis 1-2, uh, with God made the heavens and the earth. And it's used dozens of times in the first two chapters of Genesis. And it's about God making, creating, okay? And this word garments is a word that, it's sort of an intimate word. It's like, it gets used later on to mean your undergarment. It's not like what we would really understand in modern culture as underwear, but it's the, it's the garment that was said to go right up against your skin, so it was the underneath garment, the first layer of clothing protection covering, okay? Um, and the fact that it said skins there, and I made this sort of passing comment uh, a couple of weeks ago about the first sacrifice, um, the first animal sacrifice here. And that's what I was taught, you know? And I, uh, and so while I was studying for this, I was looking into that. And I don't necessarily... Um, believe exactly that is the case uh, anymore. Uh, From doing a little bit of study, it was one of my comments that I made that I probably shouldn't have brought back up, but I made it. And, you know, so, oh, I'm naked, got to get a fig leaf or two. Um, But I'm talking about it because I thought it was really interesting because it definitely doesn't say that God killed an animal here. And the word skin can mean both human skin and animal skin, okay? Okay. And the idea that God made it is about God crafting it. Okay, that word doesn't anywhere imply killing of an animal or um, anything of such type. Okay, it's about God creating something that would be the first line of defense or the first line of covering for an ashamed um, Adam and Eve. And it creates a skin, either a human or an, an animal skin, and it clothes them. Okay? So, hold on one second here. Okay. Um, just checking out some comments. Um, So let's take a look at the word clothe them. So God made something, made a first line of covering, either an animal or a human skin. Um, And there are a handful of ideas. Nancy, I'm seeing uh, your comment on Facebook, is that maybe what is happening here is that God is making them a layer of skin Um, that is their first line of defense. Or maybe there's this whole picture in the garden that this is a spiritual reality, and now maybe there's something that's going on here that God is giving them. Maybe this is like the giving them of the human body, the human flesh kind of a thing. I don't know. Um, But let's look at a couple of passages in the scripture when it talks about being clothed. Um, And I think that this gives us at least some idea here of what the clothing is about. So, number one, the main use of the word clothing, and it's used a couple of times For garment, I'm sorry, garment is um, this garment that God gives them, and then also Joseph's garment. The multicolored robe is the garment. But here's some uh, scriptures for the word clothed. This is in Judges. This is to Gideon. It says, The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Aborazites were called out to follow him. Okay, so the Holy Spirit gives him a mantle or a covering. Okay, imbues his body with something from God. Okay? Here's another one. First Chronicles 12.18 The Spirit clothed Amessai, chief of the thirty, and he said, We are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. Then David received them and made them officers of his troops." These were the mighty men, the moment here um, where the Holy Spirit or the Spirit was clothing the chief of David's thirty. Right? These are the inner core of David's world. So they get they get some sort of thing from the Holy Spirit that gives them an authority and a mantle. Okay. Here's Second Chronicles 24:20. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehohadiah the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. This was the end of the prophet Zechariah's life in this passage. He was then murdered between the porch and the altar, which Jesus talks about. So the Spirit of God clothed the prophet with something, and he declared the word of the Lord to the people. Here's the New Testament idea of clothing. Luke 24, 46-49. And Jesus said to them, the disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What is this? Well, this is the promise of Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit coming and clothing them with a garment of power from the Spirit. Okay, so whatever was going on in Genesis, um, I don't think it was an animal sacrifice with a deer skin. I think God is clothing them in a garment of protection because they are getting ready to be divorced from His presence, sent out into the world, sent out of His presence into a place that was that was harsh and pain filled filled with fraught and turmoil, but he was clothing them with something from his very presence, that he wasn't sending them out all alone, unprotected. He was sending them out clothed with something, clothed, I think, with the spirit, clothed with the protection and the guardianship of God. And maybe it was a reference to the natural skin, and we can have, I mean, that's kind of an esoteric idea, that they were spirits floating around, and then they got their bodies at that point. I don't know. Um, I've heard people say that, but I do think this is the moment that God does not leave us unprotected in our sin as we're sent from the presence. He clothes us with himself, with the Spirit, as we go out. Okay? So, a little little rabbit trail into clothing. So, the next thing that happens here is... The Lord decides, okay, so he's spoken the consequences to the serpent, to the woman and to the man, and then he's taking care of the immediate problem that Adam and Eve couldn't solve on their own. A fig leaf wasn't going to cut it in the harsh world without the tree of life, without the presence of God. They needed something bigger, something greater, okay? And God made it himself and clothed them with it, a skin, a new skin, a new garment that wasn't just something they wore, but it was something that who they were. Okay? And then, because we're made in His image, we still carry that out into the world. Genesis 20, or Genesis 3, 22 through 24, and then this is what the Lord says. Verse 22, Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. All right, so we're going to camp on this for a few minutes here. So, again, we see the Lord saying, you know, he's become like one of us, um, the, the counsel uh, of uh, the Lord God. And you can look at that a couple of weeks ago that we talked about, the heavenly, the divine counsel, the plural, knowing us. And the God says he knows us. He has the same experience that we're having knowing good of e- good and evil. And God says, because of this, because they have this experience of knowing good and evil, experiencing that, having the weight of the crushing weight of being in charge and responsible for knowing right and wrong, good and evil. God says, we don't want them humanity to live forever in this condition. And so he dry or so he He says, I don't want them to eat of the tree of life and live forever. This was a concern. Okay? And this is where some people say, well, they never ate from the tree of life um, because, you know, they did die and they were cast out. So if they had ever eaten from the tree of life, then they would have lived forever. So they didn't eat from the tree of life because God said he didn't want them to eat from it. So that means that they never ate from it. Does that make sense? That's one idea, right? And that could be, you know? I mean, when we get into this sort of dialogue with what it actually means, um, you know, I don't know if it's terribly important, but one of the things I do want to comment on is that view sort of has like the Ponce de Leon, you know, eternal springs water kind of thing. Like, and this is the myth of an eternal source of spring that... You know, if you just have one little sip of the eternal life, then you're magically, eternally living, right? That picture isn't necessarily here in the scriptures. Like the tree of life doesn't just mean, by definition, in the Hebrew scriptures that if you had a bite to eat, then you magically would live forever. The tree of life is talking about a place where you can constantly go to get life. So eating from the tree of life It's not like you guys had one burger um, or one vegan burger, um, if meat is murder for you. Like if you just have one bite of food, and once you had a bite of food, then you're never going to be hungry again, right? No, we've got to constantly eat. And part of this is the Jesus in John 7 talks about the living water. And if you drink from this water, you will never be thirsty again. But that doesn't mean you don't stop drinking from the water. It just means that you're not having that craving. Like, even the living water, we will constantly be drinking from the life of God and constantly eating from the life of God. Okay, and so I think what's happening here is that God says, now that you know the weight of being the one that's supposed to adjudicate right and wrong, good and evil... We can't let you continue to stay connected to eternal life forever because you can't hold the weight of this, okay? And therefore, verse 23, the Lord God sends him out of the garden. And verse 24, the scriptures say that God drove him out of the garden. Okay, that word drove is the word divorced or put away or sent off. It's used in all of those ways. Um, It was used with a strong arm. Pharaoh will drive the people out of his land when he finally relents to what God was saying. That's a great divorce picture. I'll take that divorce. Pharaoh divorcing the, the Hebrew people from Egypt so they can go worship God. Right? They're driven out of the land. This word gets used quite a bit when it talks about the woman that is adulterous, that has has been cast off from the family. Okay, so this idea that God drove out the man and the woman is about being sent out of the family of God. Divorce. No longer being in the relationship where you get the nurturing, comforting presence of the Father in a daily way. You're out now of the family of God. Now, he made a covenant with his people, and those, well, those covenants are coming. But he drives them out, divorces them, and they place a cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. And I want to talk about these pictures because I think these pictures are just fascinating. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what comes after this. Okay? So the tree of life is an ancient picture and it's used in a lot of different um, religions to talk about something central, to have this, this beautiful, blooming, fruiting place where you can come and consume the, the, the wisdom or the knowledge or the life or the understanding. A lot of different religious, ancient religious traditions use the idea of the tree of life or the tree where you gain special knowledge. Okay, so it's an ancient idea, but there's a great passage in Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 12. You guys may know this. I don't have it up on the screen, but it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Okay, and this is, the tree of life, again, is this place where you're constantly getting nourished and renewed. You're eating not just once from the sacred fruit, you're living, connected, nourished, and renewed by it. So to understand these pictures, we need to know the tree of life represents the wisdom, the renewing, life-giving, intimate, constant, connected experience with God, okay? This is not a magical place where you take one bite and you live forever like, you know, the the spring of eternal life, okay? This is constant renewal, all right? So that's helpful as we start to look at this, because the scriptures say, here's the tree. Um, And this is sort of the little icon that I developed for this study, the great tree. And I don't know if you guys care about this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, Excuse me. The tree there, it's made up of all these little numbers, you know, binary code or or the alphanumeric numbers. And it's sort of like this pixelized version of it, because I really like the idea that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this could be that one, um, you know, is made up of information, right? Although that's not a very good setup for this, because in this picture, it's the tree of life. So forget I said that. So my art design idea didn't work good for this analogy, but so this represents the tree of life. Dang it. Uh, and then what happens is the scriptures say that these angels, the cherubim, and in Hebrew that word cherubim in this instance is plural, okay? So there's at least two. So we'll go with two. And that would make sense, two sentinels guarding. So these are the cherubim, you know, like my angels? The cherubim with the flaming swords guarding the tree of life, okay, okay? And this is important. I'm going to make this bigger here for you. So um, this is important because I want us to see this picture of the angels, the cherubim, with the flame in each of their hands. Okay? The scriptures don't explicitly say that each had a sword, but it does say cherubim in the plural with a sword And I think it's a pretty safe bet to say there's at least two with a flaming sword. The sword, of course, is the Word of God in Revelation. The sword that comes out is the Rama Word of God. So these angels that have the wings with fire in their hands, which is the Word of God, is guarding access to the intimate, connected, daily presence of God Himself. This is what they're guarding. Okay, and the people that live with the knowledge of right and wrong, with the burden of knowing right and wrong, don't get access to live eternally connected with God because they took that on for themselves. So the fiery angels or the angels with fiery swords are protecting it. Okay, this is the picture. All right, so I want to show you um, three other places in the scripture where I see this same picture develop. All right. The first one we'll look at here is a recap from one of the second weeks. Um, this is all of this. These are the seven elements in the tabernacle of, uh, Moses or the tabernacle in the wilderness. So we've got the altar of submission, number one, the basin, the cleansing here, the lampstand, the showbread, the incense. This is the veil. And then the ark of the divine presence is here. Okay, and what is the ark? Well, the ark is two cherubim with their wings outstretched right here. And what's in the middle of the cherubim? The flame, the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah is dwelling place. The glory is the flame between the wings of the ark of the covenant. Okay, and this is outlined explicitly in the scripture when the Lord says in Exodus 25, 20, the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony. Okay, so what is this? These are two cherubim that are guarding the intimate, daily presence of God. This is the Shekinah glory of God being guarded by two angels at the most holy place, at the center of the nation of Israel that's brought out of captivity. There is an ark that has angels, and in the center of it is a flame, according to tradition, the blue flame of the Shekinah, the Shekinah presence, where God says, I will speak. I, God, will speak with you, Moses. Okay? Okay. This is without question the Genesis guardianship of Eden. This is the tree of life speaking, right? Moses has an encounter. Before he sees the ark, he has a tree. He has an encounter with a tree that's on fire but not being consumed. Right? And he hears the voice of God speaking from a tree that's on fire but not consumed. Okay? But when that becomes codified for his nation, then the angels are there guarding it, protecting it. And it's in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where God speaks face to face with his people. Okay? Two angels guarding the tree of life, the intimate daily presence with God. Okay, Now this is the tabernacle of Moses. But there's more. There's another moment here in the scriptures when second, or this is in first Kings chapter six, when, um, this is Solomon's temple. It says he put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house. What's that? The Holy of Holies. Okay. This is just a rebuilding of the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness, only Solomon style, grand scale. Solomon had to have been a Texan because everything Solomon did was big. Right? So, yay, Republic of Texas. All right. Um, he put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house. Okay? And so here's the, here's the wings of the... And they're massive. In Solomon's temple, they're not just above the ark. He put them in the whole innermost place these massive angelic creatures represented with their wings outstretched and in between the outstretched wings was the ark of the covenant itself okay it's the same picture of the two angels guarding the tree of life in solomon's temple okay same exact picture so this last piece about the two angels um i think is my favorite And I want to share it with you now. This is in the New Testament. This is Luke 24, 1 through 6. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, the women, Mary, Magdalene, and uh, her other friend, I forgot, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is here. He is not here. He has risen. Okay? Two men in dazzling apparel. Okay? Who are these two men in dazzling apparel at an empty tomb? Right? What is one way of talking about dazzling apparel? Like, these are, the, these are the flaming angels. You know, I guess there's better ways to say that. The angels with flaming swords. Um, nowadays, can't say flaming angels. But these are the angels. But what I love about this here now is they say, what is, why are you here looking for someone who is alive? Okay? What are the angels guarding? What are the two cherubim guarding at the empty tomb? Nothing. Why? Because the tree of life is no longer guarded. The tree of life is resurrected. Stop looking for the living, the tree of life, among the dead. The tomb represents the death. The angels now have no job. For thousands of years, they were the guardians of the presence of God. This is my midrash. is my interpretation, right? But for thousands of years, these are the angels, maybe. Okay, don't put this up in, you know theological you know, stone, chisel your own 11th commandment here. But the, these angels had been guarding the presence of God. Maybe these were the ones that were above the covenant. Maybe they were the ones that were assigned. We don't know. But they were no longer guarding the tree of life because the tree of life now is loosed out into the world. Okay? And this is what I want to spend in the last 15 minutes or so, I think we've, we've moved pretty quick tonight, last 15 minutes or so talking about, is that what happened in Genesis and the story there is what, what goes on when we disconnect from God and we get divorced from his covenant presence, we get clothed by God himself for covering and protection out in the world, but he guards access to the tree of life, but he immediately begins to redeem and restore and pursue his lost and wayward people. Okay, and ultimately, we're jumping way ahead to the end of the story here, but what is the redemption that God brings to the brokenness in the garden? Well, of course, it's Jesus, right? But it's not just flannel graph Jesus. There's some other things that happened before this moment, okay? And What God begins to do throughout the scriptures, and I promise you this fall I'll do a study on this, there are five primary covenants that God cuts with His people after the days of Genesis. That each of those covenants, they're major covenants, okay? There's some smaller ones and you can make some, you know, covenant things with Jonathan and David and whatever, but God's five major covenants that He cuts with Adam, with Noah, with Moses... With Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. Well, it's not really Adam. So Noah, sorry, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus. Okay, these are five major covenants and each one of those extend and expand an element of who God is and what he's revealing to his people. Okay, and this is why God comes in the form of Jesus and says that I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, to demonstrate, to act them out in front of you. Because God's plan to redeem those that have been divorced from the presence through their own ability to think and reason and rationalize their way into their own life experience. God needed and decided whether he needed or not. Maybe that's not the greatest word, but God's choice Here to reconnect and pursue was to cut covenant with his people to draw them back into fellowship with him, and then with the third great covenant, give them the law. Okay, the first covenant he cuts with Moses or with Noah. Do you guys know what the Noah covenant is? The rainbow in the sky, right? The promise to never destroy the earth again with a flood. Okay, that promise was never the flood. God never promised that he wouldn't flood the earth again. He promised he wouldn't destroy the earth with a flood. There is coming a promise to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God like a flood. That it would flood the earth. Okay, but he's not going to destroy the earth. So Noah was a covenant promise um, to call all people to himself and to protect the earth. Then he gives Abram the promise to become uh, like numerous sand on the seashore Cuts covenant with Abram in Genesis 15. And then the third great covenant is with Moses at Mount Sinai. Okay? And that is where we get, quote unquote, the law. And this shorthand version, and we're going to get into this law piece now and go into Romans 3, 5, and Galatians 3, because there is so much theology around the law and grace in the Old and the New Testament, and I think so much of that theology in the, in the Christian church today is built on top of something that is fundamentally misunderstood, Right, The Hebrew Scriptures, if you don't understand the Hebrew Scriptures and the Jewishness of Jesus and the Jewishness of Paul and the Jewishness of his Pharisaical rabbinic training, then you will interpret all of the New Testament in terms of Platonic Enlightenment rationalism and not in its proper context. And this has happened so much um, in the Western church. Yes, people that believe in the Jesus that replaced the the Jewish people, those people, I believe, are saved because the only thing that's required for salvation is to believe with Jesus in your heart and to confess Him with your mouth, and you're saved. You'll go to heaven. Great. Well, what are you doing on the earth? How are you partnering with the redemptive plan of Jesus on the earth? You know, I'm I'm not a creedal Christian. What does that mean? Well, the creeds just basically lay out, and there the great creeds of the 2nd and 3rd century um, are some of the foundational Christian doctrine out there, and I'm not saying that they're not right. Um, but the creeds were responding to a Gnostic assault, not on the divinity of Jesus, but on the humanity of Jesus. So the creedal, Christian, the, the creedal faith is built upon the idea that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, dead, and buried. Right? That's one of the lines. He was born of the virgin, married, he was crucified, dead, and buried. Well, they don't even take into account all of the Gospels. He was born of a virgin, he died, and was buried and resurrected. Well, what about all the years that he was alive and did ministry? Credal Christianity is shorthand for the fact that we talk about Jesus as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation for our sin, but we don't actually live out the mandate that He gave us in our life to extend the gospel and to rule and reign with the kingdom authority on the earth, to do everything that Jesus commanded us to do, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, um, healing to those that are blind, opening of the eyes. Right? So... How'd I get onto that soapbox? The law. That's what it is. So there's no way I can cover all of this, but I do want to assert some things and then look at Romans and Galatians because the idea that the law was bad and grace is good is just a gross oversimplification to the point of being an error. Okay, and I want to point out here is that the law, as we understand it, if you were raised like I was in a Reformed theological tradition, the law that we refer to is the third covenant of Moses, that God had already been working. In fact, that smack in the middle of the redemptive purpose, the redemptive covenanting of God with his people was the law of Moses. And Paul, in particular, had a special interest in trying to parse the difference for the Romans and the Galatians, what the law of Moses was and what the covenant of Abraham was and what the connection to Adam was. Okay, so I want to lay some of this out. I'm not going to be able to do an entire Roman study on this, and you're probably grateful because I see some yawning. You're excused, Carol. But let's take a look at this. This is Romans 3, and we're going to start to unpack law and grace and Adam and sin. Okay, this is going to be some heavy theology, but here we go. Romans 3, 21 through 24. Paul is saying this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. All right? Stop there. So, manifested is um, just a just a fancy word for being made known to the human senses. You can see, touch, taste, smell, hear, feel, whatever. Manifest, right? When you talk about, you know, I used to watch a bunch of ghost ghost hunter show on Discovery before I cut the cable and they had, you know, the manifesting of the demons or the ghosts, and it just means you're able to sense them with your natural senses, okay? So what Paul's saying here is that the righteousness of God was made tangible without the law, okay? The law wasn't given to make tangible the righteousness of God. That wasn't the purpose of the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, okay? Verse 22, Romans 3, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's a lot here. But I put this in to show you that the law was never meant to manifest the righteousness of God. Okay? The idea that the law in the Old Testament was salvation by works is false. The law was never meant to be salvation by works. It was never meant to manifest the righteousness of God. Okay, And there's no distinction between those that lived before the law and after because everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory. We're all imprisoned under the reality of sin, not because Adam sinned and doomed us all to sin, but because we all chose to sin and miss the glory of God that we're made for. Okay, this is the difference between the prescriptive and the descriptive reading of Genesis. I fall more into the descriptive reading of the book, particularly when it comes to sin. What does that mean? Well, if you have a prescription, then you're required to do this. If it's a description, it's an explanation. So if Adam is a prescription, then we're all doomed to sin because one person sinned and it's his fault that we all sin. Right? That's a prescriptive reading of Genesis. But, but what is that? Well, that's the cycle of blame. Right? That's not taking personal responsibility for your sin. That's blaming it on Adam, blaming it on the devil. It was Adam's fault. The original sin caused all of humanity to lose their eternal nature with God, and it was his fault. Well, that's not what the Scriptures say. say it's a description that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's look at this in Romans 5. He continues on with his argument through some really dense Scriptures. Okay? So here's Romans 5, 12-14. through 14. Therefore, and this is key for our understanding of Adam. This is this is connection between Adam, Abraham, and Jesus, the covenants, okay? Big. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Alright, I'm going to stop there. Um We got to look at, oh no, wrong way. Touched the wrong button. Wait, no, where am I? Okay, I'm back. Um, This is why I need a producer. Uh, I like to tell myself that. Um, Sin came into the world through one man, okay? Does it say necessarily that death came into the world through one man? Well, kind of by inference but sin comes in through one man and death comes in through sin death is about the disconnection through sin okay so sin how come how come death how come all of humanity is now doomed with death according to the scripture is it because death spread to all men because of adam it's not what it says It says, death spread to all men because all sinned. So this is what the scriptures are telling us. Adam and Eve believed the enemy's lie. It's a description of what happens to every single one of us. That sin entered into the world... And death comes on the heels of sin because we're disconnected from God and everybody is subjugated under this reality, not because Adam was bad and we're helpless victims, but because we're all participants. We have all sinned. Okay? This was not Adam's fault. This is the description of the human experience. Verse thirteen, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, okay this is key, so Paul is telling the church in in uh, the the well the Jewish community um, in Rome that the law hadn't even yet been given. remember the law had not yet been given, but missing the mark, the glory that God made us all for, that was present prior to the law. But sin, verse 13b, sin is not counted where there is no law. So his argument here, that word there is imputed, uh, translated, that's imputed sin. Um, it, and it's, I mean, it's, a, it's an accounting term, essentially. It means credited towards an account or um, guilty by definition of, or by your relationship with something else. That's the English word, imputed. But it's this idea of credited. It's used one other spot in the Scriptures, and it doesn't talk about, that other spot in the New Testament, that word imputed, doesn't talk specifically about sin. It's about when Paul, I think it's in Philemon, when he's talking about, um, you know, if there's Onesius, I think was his name, uh, that if Onesius owes you any money, then impute that to my account. Okay? Charge his... Charge his, you know, his bill to my account. um, And then give me some money so I don't have to pay it. (laughs) He's a good pastor. So, So sin, though, is not counted where there is no law. So sin existed before the law of Moses, the third covenant. It existed. We missed the mark of the glory of God. But it wasn't counted against us because there hadn't been the standard yet that had been raised. Okay? This was the argument. But then let's continue on here, verse fourteen. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning was not even though, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So he's saying here that um, sin and death was in the world before the law. Plain and simple. Okay, the law didn't cause sin, and the law didn't cause death. Sin and death existed before the law. This is a key key point, okay and it's very helpful for us that are trying to um, trying to adjudicate um, you know, the Old and the New Testament and our Jewish brothers and sisters and our relationship with all of them. It's like, well, you know, you had the law and the law imprisoned everything under sin and the law brings death and causes death and, you know, the law brings death but the Spirit gives life. So the law brings death and the Spirit brings life. I've heard that taught in Christian churches. Well, the law doesn't bring death. Sin and death was there before the law, okay? The law has another purpose, than to cause sin and death or to be blamed for sin and death. And we need to see this, okay? What is then the purpose of the law if it doesn't cause death, if it doesn't bring death, if it doesn't impute righteousness to us? It was never designed to impute righteousness. It was never designed to manifest the righteousness of God onto the Jewish people. It was never designed to be salvation by works. Never, okay? So what then was it for? We could do a long study on this in Hebrews and take a look at this, but I want to take us to Galatians 3, okay? This is key for understanding this. So, Galatians 3, 15 through 18-ish. To give a human example, brothers, again, Paul, church, Galatia, up northern portion of, well, Greek, Greek Isles area. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So this is just legal terminology, right? If you make a covenant, a contractual obligation to do this, this, and this, blessings and curses, we talked about this, until until there is death, there is no annulling it once it's been ratified, consummated, okay? And he's telling them this because he's making a law argument with Adam, Abraham, and Jesus, Okay? The very thing he was talking with the Romans, but he gives them a bit more information here in the church in Galatia. In 16, we go on Galatians 3. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, so this is important for us to understand is that Paul connects the promise of God and the covenant promise that God will bless the offspring of Abraham. He says that's plural, or he says it's not plural, it's singular, which means he wasn't talking about the offspring of Abraham's loins, the 12 tribes. He was ultimately talking about Jesus. Paul makes this dramatic connection for us which I imagine was pretty hard to stomach for some of his Jewish followers, but it's key to understanding the covenant of Abraham was pointing towards the covenant of Jesus. And it was specifically talking about the fulfillment of Jesus. Okay, so verse 17, this is then what I mean. And he says it very explicitly here. Verse 17, Galatians 3, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after the covenant of Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified with God, by God, so as to make the promise void. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Okay, complicated and a lot. But he's saying this, 430 years after the covenant of Abraham or the covenant of Abram before God covenanted with Abram before he changed his name to Abraham, okay? That's why I say the covenant of Abram. 430 years after that covenant, they came out of Exodus. They came out of Egypt, and they went to the mountain, and Moses then receives the third major covenant from God with the Torah, the commandments, and the ark, and the flaming, everything that I just talked to you about, okay? So 430 years after God tells Abram, that he's covenanting with him, the law comes. And so he's saying, look, there was justification by faith long before the law was ever given. God credited Abraham as righteous because he believed, not because he followed the law. The law hadn't even been given yet. So justification by faith is a thoroughly Old Testament idea. The whole thing. This is the second covenant, right? The second major covenant. Salvation by faith. Justification by faith, not by law. And Paul makes it plain here, although it's kind of hard for us to read if we've already got our indoctrinated Western Platonic mindset, um, replacement theology mindset here. So, This old promise, the previous promise as ratified with God, was not null and void, verse 17, because the inheritance that God promised us isn't coming to us through the Mosaic law. The inheritance promised Abraham is coming through faith. God never promised Moses that he would become numerous like the sand on the sea. He promised that to Abraham. And Paul is saying, if you want to live in the inheritance, the promise of God to become numerous, to be counted into the family of God, then that inheritance doesn't come through the law. It comes through faith. Okay? These are Old Testament ideas. All right? But that begs the question for them and for us— of how he talks next. Why then the law? Okay? It's a good question. It's a good question, Paul. You're a smart guy. You know, if the law was never meant to give salvation by works, if salvation by faith, justification, righteousness, credited to our account through faith in God, came 430 years before the law, why on earth did the law come at all? What do we need the law for? Why did God decide to send the law to the liberated Jewish people out of bondage? Okay, and this is key for understanding the answer to the question that he gives to the church uh, in Galatia, and he goes and he talks about Mount Sinai in in Galatians 4. I'm not going to get there, but I'm just going to say this, is that God set the people free out of Egypt, saved them baptized them through the Red Sea, filled them with the Holy Spirit at the Split Rock. If you went through my Exodus study, you know what I'm talking about. And then he drew them to his mountain. They had been freed, they had been healed, they had been delivered, saved, and set free, right? That's sozoed, right? Saved, healed, and delivered. And then, once they're saved, healed, and delivered, he gives them the law at Mount Sinai. Okay? So they're free, saved by grace, and then they get given the law, for what purpose? To learn how to live as slaves who are now children. This is what the law does. It takes slaves and leads them to Messiah by steward the children from slavery into sonship. This is what the law does. It takes a slave and stewards them to the Messiah so they can become sons. Okay? Teaches slaves how to become sons. This is what the law is about. And I can tell you, if you get this, this is the key to unlocking the mysteries of the Old Testament. Not the mysteries like some esoteric Gnostic mystery, right? This is the key to unlocking the heart of the Father for why He gave the law, to take a slave and lead them to the Messiah so that the Messiah can make them a son. Where did I come up with this idea? Well, I read my Bible, y'all. It's right here. Galatians. Verse 19, Galatians 3. Why then the law? Well, it was added because of the transgressions, right? Big fancy word for generational sin. Because all, remember, all had sinned. wasn't just Adam. Everyone kept sinning. Generations of sin, transgressions, heaped upon the children, of fathers and fathers of the fourth generation, or whatever the generational number is. I forget if it's three or four or seven or whatever. The law was added because of transgressions, Galatians 3.19, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, which I think was both Mount Sinai and Abraham. The promise was made to Abraham that they would get brought out to the mountain and come and worship. If you go and read Genesis chapter 15, the Lord says that I am giving you this promise until the iniquity, for 400 years until the iniquity of the Amorites has been completed, and then they will return here to worship me. Where's the here returning after 400 years? Here, Mount Sinai. What's at Sinai? The presence of God in fire, just like the tree of life. Only there's a guardian around the mount tree, a boundary that gets placed, right? These pictures are so consistent, y'all. I know I'm going fast, but I'm going to keep going. So until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, Abraham and Moses at Sinai, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. That is Moses, okay? I believe the intermediary he's talking about there is Moses, a messenger, an angelos in Greek. Um, Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. That's a Shema moment. Verse 21, let's focus this. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. This is sort of breathtaking stuff for me, y'all, because Paul is saying so clearly, the law was never meant to give life. That was not the point. One, it didn't cause death, two, it didn't cause sin, three, it never meant to give life. That was never the point of life. That was never point of the law. It was never intended Okay, And I'm sure that there were Jewish people in the Pharisaical and Sadducees and Essenes and Herodian crews there that were thinking that this law was the thing that could bring life. And Paul's saying, look, this is never the point of the law. It was never meant to give you righteousness, to give you life, to cause death or cause sin. What then is it for? Okay, here we go. But the scripture, Galatians 3.22, the scripture imprisoned everything under Sin, not the law, but sin, okay? Missing the glory of God that we've all been made for. Scripture puts everything under missing the glory that we've been made for, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, not those that hold fast to the law. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Here we go. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so what does this mean? Then we'll finish with 25. The law was our guardian until Christ came. So we have to remember the law did not cause death. The law did not cause sin. The law did not cause life. What then did the law do? It was our guardian until Christ. Okay, that word guardian is a Greek word pedagogue, and it's where we get the term pedagogy or pedagogy. It's teacher instruction, and the pedagogue in Greek culture was a very specific role. It was a role that wealthy families had for someone, like a steward in the house, to take care of the children of the parents until the children came of age. The pedagogue didn't teach the children. The pedagogue monitored the children, took them to school. If you were a wealthy Greek child, you could not step out of the house without your pedagogue. They were your manager in everything that you did, okay? They managed you and stewarded you until you became a full heir. And if I was doing a full study on Galatians, we'd continue on because he talks about being a slave in the house. While the slave, while the child is a, is an underage or is a minor, he's no better than a slave. And he connects being a child, being brought into fullness and maturity as a son. And this is all about sonship. But I want to stay focused on the law here because... When you are a child being led by a pedagogue, and the law is the pedagogue until Christ. So, because the law doesn't cause death, and it doesn't cause life, and it doesn't cause sin, it is the pedagogue, the steward. I think a really good modern way of thinking about a pedagogue is the idea of a hospice worker. You guys know hospice workers? You know, um, you know, when my grandfather passed away, you know, he was in hospice for a year, and we fell in love with our hospice workers. I mean, these, these, people, are, these people are something else. Uh, one of my wife's longest clients um, has a wonderful Jewish woman who is such a dear friend of the family, and she's a hospice worker. Um, she had been for years. Hospice workers, do they cause death? No. They steward people in their death and dying so they can die connected to each other. This is the role of a hospice worker, to hold people in their death and dying so that they can die well and die connected. This is the role of the law, to hospice us to Christ. Not to cause death or bring life or justify us by works, but to hold humanity in its piece of death and dying so that we can finally die well. And what do we do when we encounter Jesus? we die, right? That's the whole idea. When we encounter Messiah, we die. We have death to the old sin nature, death to the old life and life in Christ. And this is why Paul goes off saying, it's no longer I that live, the Christ that lives in me and the life that I live now, I live by the spirit of God. Okay. And so what is the law? It's a hospice worker, It holds us in our death and dying so that when we encounter Messiah, we can actually finally die to all of this stuff of right and wrong, good and evil, all of this ability to think and to know and to grasp and hold and make everything good. And all of our Old Testament, New Testament Christian theology and this tradition just wraps us further back up in the knowledge of right and wrong, good and evil. And God is saying, no, I gave you the law to hold you in your state in death and dying so you could become a slave in your sin, but I could lead you to die and be resurrected, reborn, not, not resurrected, but reborn as a son and a daughter in the family of God. Once you were cast off and now you've been brought back. Okay? This whole idea is about verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We don't have a hospice worker anymore. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, we're now all sons of God through faith. And he doesn't explicitly say it in this verse, but it's very clear that we become sons and daughters of God because we die to ourselves and we live in Christ. That's the whole idea. When you've got that lens and that framework, you can read Leviticus, and all of a sudden Leviticus is like, whoa, What a fascinating book of all of the different ways. And I just think about all the ways that we had to take care of my grandfather and all the things the hospice workers did to care for him and all the things that I hated. Like, I didn't change the bedpan and deal with all the gross, dirty stuff. But if you don't deal with that, it just gets unbearable. And this is what Leviticus is about, you know? Not a whole bunch of rules and regulations to justify you. It's all about hey, you slaves that have been living under an oppressive pharaonic culture for so many years, here's how you actually have to live in close quarters with God as your sovereign and not the Pharaoh. If you sin against one another, you have to come and publicly, you can't commit private sin. You can't commit public sin and private repentance. This is one of the foundations of Leviticus, right? You can't publicly sin against somebody and then go like, dude, I'm sorry. Quietly, you invite them over for wine and like apologize quietly. No, you've got to take a turtle dove or a lamb to the priest along with that person, and you have to publicly admit your wrong and you have to slaughter something that was valuable to you to publicly display to everybody that you have forgiven, that you repented. And then that also causes a public acceptance for forgiveness. So it shuts down gossip. In the Hebrew, it's called Lashon Haran, and it's murder with the lips, okay? Gossip, if you're in Levitical, you know, you're in a Jewish community and you're living by the Levitical law and you publicly sin against someone else and then you have to go to the temple and publicly apologize, all your neighbors see you doing what God has demanded of you for public repentance. Now what happens if the one that you sinned against starts spreading rumors about you and holding it against you? Well, everyone watched you repent. So if you now listen to the gossip, you're participating in murder with the mouth, and now you're the one in sin. Okay? This is so beautiful when you understand that this is not about trying to make yourself good so God will accept you. It's about protecting the community of people that you live in. This is what the Torah, the commandments, were all about. To be sure, things got weird in the period from the Babylonian exile to the coming of Jesus, there was a lot of conflict. Jesus has that open conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Rodians and the, some of the Essenes. He has that open conflict, right? But it's a family conflict, okay? It's not Jesus coming in as this outsider trying to establish a new religion. He's restoring the places in the Jewish world that have gotten off, from the heart of God as it's expressed through Torah. Okay, so that's a lot. The last one here. Now, I'm not sure why I included this. Maybe I'll just cut to it and it will jog my memory. So this is what the law was about, about restoring connection uh, to God, Um, holding us in our state of death and dying so we can die well, die connected to Jesus, and actually come back to life in a way that was intended. And when we come back to life, what are we? Well, we're renewed, remade, and we're reconnected to the tree of life. And this is the whole thing. Because when Jesus was resurrected and the empty tomb is there and the guardians of the tree of life have got nothing to do anymore because he's out in the world now. This is the great picture that we see at the end of the age in Revelation 21. Verses 1 through 3. We see the tree of life again, and we see water of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship in. So here's the tree of life, and there's no longer anything that's cursed. The land is no longer cursed. The serpent's already been dealt with at this point, with all the seven seals and all the craziness that happens in the chapters preceding this. The point is this, that the tree of life has, rem- has been restored into its garden, and the fruit of the tree of life yields monthly fruit. It's about twelve, it's about government, it's all these beautiful pictures. But the whole idea is that because of the disconnection and the divorce decree, the restoration through Jesus, the law that was our hospice worker or a pedagogue to lead us to death to be resurrected in Christ. And now that we're in Christ, ultimately our end is that the tree of life is for the healing of the nations all of them. And then in Revelation, there is a great bridal supper. Why? Because the divorced people that were sent out from the garden are now remarried, right? It's the marriage supper of the lamb. And this is kind of cheeky, but it's worth saying, you know, in our modern sensibilities now and some of this stuff, it's like... You know, women have to be sons, sons, sons all throughout their life. And, but that's just with your living life. You know, you have to be a son of God in the language in the scripture is sons. But men, when we get to heaven, it's all about bride, bride, bride. So women have to be sons for their life, but men, we have to be brides forever. Um, so if you don't like that gender normative language, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Um, I'm looking forward to being a bride forever you know, connected again to Jesus without all of the sin and all of the darkness and all of the pain and all the disconnection and all the chaos that goes out in the world with no longer having anything there accursed, Right, that we are with God. And if you read Revelation, it's just a beautiful conclusion to the story that we've been taken from the garden in Genesis, where there was a tree of life, divorced from the presence of God, and all throughout Scripture has been a pursuing, redeeming, unrelenting assault from God on the powers of darkness that separated us, that wooed us out. He called us back, gave us all of these covenants, restored them all, held us in our death and dying, and now He's saying, This is your end, Church of Jesus. And because it's your end, there's nothing you can do now that will change that end. So you may as well get busy, not dreaming about getting raptured off the planet, but get busy eating from the tree of life and becoming healing for the nations of the earth. Because this is something that we live in right now, that we are the healing life for the nations. This is what believers are. If you know Jesus, then you're reconnected to the tree of life and you can eat from the tree of life and you can drink from the water of life and you can become living water and healing for nations right now. This is a promise that will come in its fullness in a new way with a new heaven and a new earth. But right now, we still are connected to Jesus and we are connected again to the tree of life. And I'm telling y'all, discipling nations is the mandate of the believers. Because we have leaves that we can eat from that will heal nations. You, your divine strategies, but more than that, your heart, your connection to Jesus brings healing everywhere you go. And the further, this is the Ezekiel picture, the further out from the temple the water gets, the deeper it is. You want more of the presence and the beautiful life-giving water of God? Go out into the world and spread that living water that's inside of you. Because we've been reconnected to Jesus, reconnected to the tree of life, reconnected where there was once a divorce decree, but redemption has called us again back into the family of God through faith, by grace, in the one who is the Son of God, Jesus our Lord. Pray with me. Living God, we thank you that you have indeed restored us and that we do not have to live as orphans without the comfort of a father, but that we have been called back into the family of God. Spirit of God, I ask that you would stir up our hearts, Father, to be more in love with you. Father, not just to have the emotional experience of feeling blessed and and connected and without care or worry, that too, Jesus, but also the reality that we don't have to struggle and strive and clothe ourselves, Father, with our own righteousness. Father, that we would know what it's like to be in love with you so that we wouldn't have to wonder or worry another day in our lives whether we're good, whether we're beautiful, whether we're valuable, whether we're doing anything meaningful with our lives. Jesus, and I just confess and repent before you, God, that I have so not believed that you have made me valuable and good, Father, and that I'm with the rest of the earth, God, in the belief that I am fundamentally flawed and I'm just living in mistakes, Jesus. But Father, I confess to you tonight that I believe your truth. God, and I ask Jesus that you would remake us. Father, remake our hearts, God, so that we would know without doubt, without fear, and that we would not run in shame, but respond to your call that calls out to us, where are you? Have you done the thing I told you not to do? And when we hear that call, we would stop and return to the Father and not spiral into self-loathing, spiral into shame, but receive the fathering love and reconnection of Jesus, the tree of life, and the fruit of his connection is healing for us, for our families, and for nations. We ask you, Jesus, to do this. We can't access this with our theology, We can tell stories about it so that we can connect our minds. But Jesus, we need your spiritual life to do this in us. So I ask God that you would do that tonight for us, in us. Remind us, deepen our experience and our love and our knowledge of you. We love you, Daddy. We bless you, Jesus, King of the universe, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Holy One of Israel, the Lord Almighty. We bless you, Jesus. We pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, I really need Jesus to do all those things. And he will. So thank you for letting me work that stuff out tonight. Um, If there are any questions... I would love to answer a few of them. It's I went a little long tonight, said they're going to be a fire hose. I guess it was a little, little bit of that delivered on that promise. If you guys have any questions, you can put it in the chat in um, Zoom. Or if you guys have any questions on um, uh, Facebook, I'm looking at one. Sue has a good question. I'm wanting to know... Um, Sue, that's a good question. I'm going to talk about that. Um, I don't have the time probably at the end here um, to talk about that. 1 Timothy 2.12, do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Um, uh, that's a really good question. There's a lot that's written and spoken about that. Um, I do believe that this context, the having a cultural context and understanding is key. Um, uh, some of the fundamental religious traditions in Christianity reject that whole idea. Um, you know, the contextual exegesis, that's called. Um, but I think that it's accurate. And if you do some contextual exegesis on that passage, you come to understand some of what Paul was dealing with um, uh, in, the, in the church. And um, so if you read it at face value... Typically, when people say, I just read things at face value, it's just the plain reading of the text. Much of the time, what that means is it's read with our Western Greco-Roman mindset. Um, and I do, I do believe that, uh, well, that there's another way to interpret that and understand that that takes the context into, um, and I'm not going to talk more about that, but um, my wife is a great teacher and I love receiving from women in the pulpit. And I think that the church is not going to become who she really is until um, we get rid of the crummy theology that says women can't teach or be pastors or apostles or leaders. I think that's totally false. Um, I understand where it comes from, and I know that it comes from a great desire to be biblical, you know, but it also comes um, with a seed from the garden of the serpent that hates women. And I don't want to be a participant in those serpent lies in any area I can. So that's one of the areas I think the serpent lies to. So I've danced around that enough. Um, any other questions? I'm looking for in Zoom or on Facebook or let me check over here in Google. YouTube. Next class, you'll more teaching relevant. Street of the Healing Nations. Uh, more information, Elizabeth, on Revelation 22, Healing of the Nations. That would be fun. Um, okay. Well, um, I do want to just say I am not sure. Stay connected to me here on Facebook and on my website. If you want to go to adamschindler.com, Um, then you can do that. And that's a good place to get connected with emails from me um, because I am going to start sending out more emails specifically around some of this. Um, But if you want to get, whoops, let me go back here. Um, if you want to get connected to me, you can text the word study um, to 770 746 8388 and go to my website, adamschindler.com. Have a little thing there you can get email notifications and updates. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to be doing one of these next week. I'm closing on a house and moving in the next couple of weeks, and I'm going to be dismantling my little studio behind me and going to a temporary space. So. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see how I feel. Um, I'm just going to leave this on my emotions. I think probably the next two weeks I'll do something, um, continue on with the Genesis study and some other elements of this. But I'll probably end up taking a little bit of a break in August and then coming back with some new stuff in the fall. So, again, thank you all for joining. Thank you all for coming and getting connected. Thank you for praying, believing, and remember that we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Keep your hearts on Jesus and watch about what's happening in electric integrity in Georgia and Arizona Wisconsin and Michigan, y'all. It's not done. So that's a big political plug at the end of a Bible study. But God bless you all. Thank you so much for coming, and I will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. All right, y'all. Hello. Back in Zoom. I got I got everything shut down on Facebook. Let me fix one more thing here. Yeah. Here. Wait. wait. Stay All safe. Right. Get some rest.